Well, we're in uh, message number five in our Game Changer series, and of course, Jesus is the Game Changer in all of our lives. But in the book of Acts, chapter two is where we're at today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up and turn to Acts chapter two. This is where we see something about the game-changing power of the Holy Spirit that's poured out on the church for the very first time at Pentecost, Acts chapter two. Now, when you turn to Acts two, you're going to arrive in verse one through the verse, uh, first 21 verses or so, and you'll find one of the most misunderstood passages in all the Bible. In fact, it's one of those mistranslated passages often today. People try to reproduce what happened in Acts chapter two, and, and uh, they don't look at all that happened. They don't understand all that happened. So. I, Obviously, it's uh, misunderstood in so many ways. This is the day of Pentecost. It's the time when the Holy Spirit first is poured out. So when you read your text today, in order for us to be able to be on solid ground about what actually happened in the book of Acts, I want you to put on your CSI hats. Does anybody know what CSI stands for? Crime Scene Investigation. Now, no crime is taking place in Acts chapter 2. Don't, don't get me wrong. But in a crime scene investigation, you want to thoroughly observe everything in the area of the event that took place. And we're gonna look at the event of Pentecost under the eyes and through the scope of a crime scene investigator. That means that we cordon off the area, we look at the context of the scene, we look at the details of the scene, we might walk around it in circles, ever decreasingly in size until we get to the middle of that scene, we may walk back out in increasing circles. We might divide it into sections and evaluate each section of a scene in order to not miss any details. We'll, we'll take pictures, wide angle lens, and then narrow it down just a little bit so we get the whole picture, then zooming in to the finite details before we make any conclusions. Now, here's what happens in crime scene investigation. In crime scene investigation, if you fail to observe some key elements of the scene, you will make a faulty interpretation of what took place and therefore a faulty application of what you do as a result of that scene. So it's incredibly important to observe well. Well, reading your Bible is much like that, especially with an event that took place 2,000 years ago. To not be swayed by what someone says that wasn't there, but to be swayed, to be convinced by what is actually there. That's what we're doing with Acts chapter two. All right, so you have your crime scene investigation hats on, okay? Let's stand together as we read God's word beginning in Acts chapter two, verse one. By the way, the reason we wanna do this is because if we don't, we will miss the point of Acts two. And we don't wanna miss the point of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost had come. Now this was an actual event. Pentecost was an event in the life of the Jewish people where people came in for this festival. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. Now this is in the upper room. There are 120 who have followed Christ and who have met there at his command after Christ's resurrection. And so this is the group that we're speaking of here, verse four. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now here's an explanation of that in verse five. 
Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now this is beyond the 120. Thousands now have come to this event called Pentecost. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Now I want you to pause for just a moment and, and note this is not unintelligible gibberish. This is not uh, some language that no one understands. It also does not require an interpreter or a translator. They are all hearing something in their native tongue, verse seven. And they were amazed and astonished saying, why are not all these who are speak Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongue, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Verse 12. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, these are full of sweet wine. In other words, they're drunk, and that's why they're talking in all these different languages. Verse 14. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God said, I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. So Peter is talking about Joel's prophecy of end times here and that this is the start of those end times. Verse 21, the key word. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Man, what a, what a line. Father, today I pray that you will speak to us powerfully, clearly, and personally in a way that only you can by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. Man, what a great, great text of scripture. Now, as we begin to dig into this for a few moments, I wanna be careful as we walk through it and, and, and just remind you there are some challenges in interpreting the book of Acts all the way through the book. It's important to remember two things. First, Acts is an unfolding story. Sometimes when we go to a book of the Bible, we say, this book speaks of theology, and that's how we ought to practice theology. Well, that's true of the epistles, the letters of Paul, but the book of Acts is a narrative, it's a story, it's an unfolding story, keep that in mind. Secondly, the book of Acts focuses on a corporate outpouring of the Spirit and not the individual indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we're gonna make that distinction today as we walk through this. Both are incredibly important, but it's important for us to know that what we observe helps us know how to interpret it and how to apply that in our lives. And the author of this, of course, under the power of the Holy Spirit is Dr. Luke. Luke was uh, methodical and meticulous. He was a doctor, he was a physical doctor. He documented the life of Jesus in the book of Luke and now in the book of Acts, he is continuing to tell the story of the life of Jesus lived out through the church. So the book of Acts is about the life of Jesus continued. It's also the story about the church unfolding. It's also about 
you and what God wants to do in your life and how he's going to do it. And it's really accelerating today to talk about the power that he gives to every person to live that life out. When we talk about real people, real hope, real life, we can't live real hope and real life without the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at what this says today to help us understand how it works in our lives. First of all, the experience itself. What actually happened at Pentecost? So I want you to keep your Bibles open and I want you to keep your finger on one of the verses that we look at one at a time as we look at several of them today. In verses two through, or verses one through five of chapter two, we find what actually happened at Pentecost. Now, now keep in mind, this is the actual, authentic, original experience. And it's undeniably, it's God's doing. It's not something someone could manufacture. It's not something that's propped up or something that is somehow dramatized in any way. This is what actually happened at Pentecost by eyewitnesses that were actually there. Now, as we begin in this analysis, this looking through these verses, notice what they were doing. Verse two, they were sitting. They weren't standing. They weren't uh, kneeling. They weren't asking for some visitation of any kind. They were simply waiting. This is not a charismatic altar call we're talking about in Acts chapter 2. This is a moment where the 120 have gone to the upper room and they're doing just what Jesus said. You go and wait. Just wait. Because there will be a moment and there will be an undebatable moment, uh, a moment that, that can't be explained any other way where I'm going to pour my spirit out in your life. So you go and wait. They were sitting. And then in verse two, the Bible says, as the Holy Spirit was poured out, it said a noise like a violent rushing wind. A violent rushing wind. Now this does not mean that they had a uh, prehistoric sound system where they pushed a button and some recording of some sound rushed over the, over the uh, speakers. That's not what they're saying. They're saying it was a violent sound of a rushing wind. Now, let me pause for just a moment. Uh, I grew up in Oklahoma in a place called Tornado Alley. Now, there's a lot of Tornado Alley places in Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas. How many of you have actually been uh, in a tornado or near enough a tornado to experience that in some way? A lot of hands go up, okay? I want you to know, as a six-year-old child, one of my earliest memories is my dad carrying me out of our house through rushing loud wind and driving rain into a cellar of our neighbor's house next door, and a tornado was going over. And I'll never forget the sound of that tornado. It was violently loud. It was rushing wind. It was blowing us all over the place, barely made it into the cellar. It didn't touch down that day in our town at all, but it passed over us. But I'll never forget that violent rushing wind. It sounded like a freight train going by. There's no way to duplicate that. There's no way for someone to somehow create that. And so what's going on is unmistakably a noise that God allows these people to hear as the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. So there's a noise like a violent rushing wind. Then they saw something as well in verse three. There appeared to them, as it were, tongues of fire resting on each one of them. So they heard this sound and then they saw tongues of fire, cloven tongues of fire, if you will, resting on each one. Now, this is not an invisible experience. This is audible. It's visible. It's supernatural. It's obviously something designed to get their attention in every way. It's obviously so much God that they couldn't conclude anything else other than God is visiting us right here, right now with the promise of the Holy Spirit, which we've been instructed to wait for. And then if you look down in verse four, 
it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or other languages. Now up to this point, those in the upper room, the 120 in the upper room were followers of Jesus, but they had never been given the gift of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit hadn't been given yet. You see, the Holy Spirit did not come until Jesus ascended. Remember Jesus saying, it's expedient that I go because if I don't go, I can't send the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. Remember Jesus said that I won't leave you alone. I'm not gonna leave you as orphans. I'm gonna come again to you and I'm gonna send another helper like myself to be with you. So this has not taken place yet until Acts chapter two. Jesus has been with him physically and now Jesus, after having been physically crucified, buried, risen again physically, and now ascended physically into heaven, is no longer with them. These days have passed, they're in this upper room, and now he's pouring out his Holy Spirit. But up until this point, these are followers of Jesus who have never experienced the new birth because the Spirit had not come. This was their new birth experience as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, where do you get the idea of new birth? Well, you get that in John chapter three. Remember when the man named Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Jesus, I perceive that you're a, a rabbi, a teacher sent from God. And Jesus responded to Nicodemus in John three. If you have your Bibles open, you can look in verse three. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? I mean, that's a great question. How is that gonna happen, Jesus? I can't crawl into my mother's womb and be born again, can I? I call this the most ridiculous question ever asked of Jesus. Of course, you cannot crawl back into your mother's womb. But Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, not only must you be born of a woman, but now you also must be born of a spirit, of the spirit of God. Born of water, but born of spirit. You can't enter the kingdom of God. Now these 120 had followed Jesus while he was on planet earth, but they had never been born of the spirit because the spirit had not yet been given. And now at Pentecost, the spirit is poured out and this is it for those new believers. This is their brand new birth. It's followers of Jesus Christ, no doubt about it. They are now born again of the spirit of God and now they have the spirit of God inside of them. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a great moment, folks, when 120 people come to that new birth experience. It had been followers up to that moment. So this is the experience what actually happened at Pentecost. But what was the result? What was the result? What kind of impact did it have on people? In verses five through 11, we find the result. And it says in verse five, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And the word for language there is the word dialect. In fact, in the Greek, it's dialectos is the way you say it. The native language, the heart language. And when someone speaks the heart language, it gets attention. It gets attention. I remember when I was a 16 year old boy, I went on my first mission trip. We went to Four Corners, New Mexico. It's uh, the corners of where four states are and it's near some large Navajo Indian reservations there. And my job as a 16 year old, I have no idea why they entrusted me with this, but they gave me the keys to a 15 passenger van and I drove through all the reservations and picked up kids 
to bring them back to a vacation Bible school kind of event where we taught them about Jesus and had all kinds of refreshments and games and so forth. So they gave me the key to a van to carry a bunch of kids. Now, if you're not seeing the irony of that, I don't, I don't know if I can help you. Me at 16, that's not a good responsible decision, but they, they did give that to me. And I remember driving through every day, picking those kids up, I got to know some of them, but they did not speak English at all. And so when we came to Vacation Bible School, we had teachers that taught Navajo to teach them the gospel and so forth. And, and all week long, I had this little book with me about uh, Navajo language. And I wanted to learn some of the Navajo language and at least communicate with a couple of these kids. And, and one little girl every week was one of the first ones I picked up every day. And she sat on the, the, the seat next to where I was driving every day. And I wanted to say something to her. So at the end of the week, I, I had learned to say a yo anishna, which is in Navajo, I love you. I figured that'd be a great thing to say to her. I mean, all week long we talked to her about Jesus loving her and, and about Jesus dying on the cross. I thought I'll learn to say a yo anishna and say that to her. And I did. And man, it got her attention because someone was speaking to her in her own language that really didn't have any business of knowing her own language. And it got her attention. That's just how it works naturally. If you speak to someone in their mother tongue, in their native tongue, you get their attention. But what happens if someone that cannot speak that language all of a sudden speaks that language, your native tongue, your dialect, all of a sudden speaking in a way that you heard when you were growing up in your home, wherever that was, and you heard that strangely familiar, but from the mouth of someone that had no business knowing that, you would have to conclude, God is communicating to me right now. And that's what was happening. And it was just isolated cases where one or two or three of them, but the whole crowd from 16 different nations that are named by Dr. Lou are hearing their native dialect being spoken about the, the, the mighty deeds of God. There's no other conclusion that, than that God is speaking to us, that God is communicating to us, is communicating through uh, frail people who have no idea what they're doing except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only one explanation, and that is, it's God. It's God. The Bible also says that they explain that by saying in verse 11, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. This is what I call the anti-Babel moment. You know, at the Tower of Babel, when the sin of mankind conspired to build a mighty tower to heaven, uh, believing that mankind was mighty enough to build a tower into heaven, God went down and confused their languages. That's called the Tower of Babel, where they could no longer communicate anymore because they spoke different languages. This is the anti-Babel. This is where the Spirit of God decides to bring everybody together by using languages as well so that they can all be brought together by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this anti-Bible moment where all of a sudden they come together and they hear the mighty deeds of God, the, the great deeds of God like creation and like the miracles of the Old Testament, the miracles of Jesus, the virgin birth, prophecy fulfilled, the life, death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All these things were being told to all these different people. And they're convinced that God is speaking to us. And then the explanation. How do the original disciples understand this? Look at what it says in verse 16. Peter stands up and says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So his first attempt at explaining this is, let's go back to the Old Testament again. Do you remember last week when we talked about Peter's first statement after Jesus was resurrected in chapter one, verse 15, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. 
Let me say to you today, you can't unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. You'll hear it uh, again and again from me. We must keep our Bible together. Keep the Old Testament hitched together with the New Testament. You can't take the foundation away from the foundational truths that are built upon it. So Peter, for the second time, hails back to the Old Testament. And he says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, relying on the Old Testament. Of course, all that Peter says in that quote that we've just read uh, deals with apocalyptic end times. Peter's basically saying, this is the beginning of the last era. You had the Old Testament era, you had the era where Jesus walked on planet Earth. Now you have this last era, the era of the church, where the Spirit has been poured out. And this is the last era before Jesus comes back and completes his kingdom. We're in that era right now. The prophet Joel spoke of that, spanning many, many hundreds of years. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And in verse 17, the key to that, I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. At that moment, the Holy Spirit of God was poured out on the New Testament church and it was the promise fulfilled first to the Jews and later on to the others. Now I go back to John 14 for a moment. John 14, you have your Bibles, open it up to John 14. You see, before Jesus ascended and before Jesus left the disciples, before his crucifixion, he promised he would be doing this. And here's what he said again to refresh your memory. John 14, verse 16. I love this passage because this passage continues to instruct me and inspire me and encourage me and remind me of how I ought to live. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that is another like myself, another helper that he may be with you forever. In other words, I'm gonna give you something by asking the Father that you'll never ever be without. You're gonna be without me physically, but you're not gonna be without this other helper. And then he explains in verse 17, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you right now, right now. Jesus abides with you right now. So you know him, you recognize who I am, but he will be in you. That is the Holy Spirit will be in you in the future. I will not leave you as orphans. I, specifically, I will come to you. That's the emphasis. Jesus says, I'm gonna come to you, but I'm gonna come to you as the Spirit of God, not just as the Son of God. See, the God the Father is, is the, the most predominant figure in the Old Testament. Jesus, God the Son, is the most predominant figure of the Gospels. And then the Holy Spirit of God begins to begin the, the, the person of the Godhead that walks with us forever and ever until Christ comes back. This is what is happening, Peter said. The Spirit is being poured out on you and you will never again be alone. Man, it's powerful. I'll pour forth my spirit. Now, let me just say this, that all that were in the upper room that day were Jews, Jewish followers of Christ. And that's why this corporate experience happens four times in the book of Acts. If you want to read those four times, you can go to Acts chapter eight, where the Samaritans have gathered together and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Samaritans and Cornelius and those, those people. Then in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 10, the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 19, the Greeks receive the Holy Spirit all in the same way. This experience took place four times with four different groups of people 
and according to scripture was not again repeated. And from that point on, the Holy Spirit came into every heart individually at the new birth. Here's what happens. When you come to the place of putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, then you become a follower of Jesus, but you could become a follower of Jesus by the power of Jesus. You say yes to following Jesus. You put your trust and faith in him. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He fills you with his power. And then he lets you walk in that power. And you have the Holy Spirit from the day that you give your life to Jesus. You're born of the Spirit on that day. You're born again on that day. And if you've never been born again, if you've never given your life to Jesus, you do not yet have the Holy Spirit. But if you've been born again, if you've given your life to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. He never leaves you. He never leaves you alone. He'll be with you. He'll empower you forever until Christ comes back. Man, what a great promise we have. What a great promise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, Paul says to the church at Corinth, for by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. I love all the awes in that. The Bible also tells us emphatically that we must continually be being filled. In Ephesians chapter five, verse 18, it says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, the wording is actually be continually being fulfilled by the Holy Spirit, that you continue to seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I need to seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the reason you need to seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit is because we leak, we leak. We grieve the Spirit of God, we quench the Spirit of God, we just obey the Spirit of God at various times in our lives. We don't listen to the promptings, we don't listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we have to take a step back and say, God, I've been living by my own power, with my own ideas too much. Please forgive me, fill me with your Spirit again. And the Bible promises that we'll be full of the Spirit again. It's a constant thing. It's a constant walk for the Christian. It's almost like breathing out and breathing back in. Breathe out sin, breathe out self, and inhale the Spirit of God in your life. Jesus said, I'll never leave you alone. I'll come to you, and I'll stay with you forever. And that's the promise we have today based on the corporate outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But you know, we can know all those things and we can not be confused and we can still miss the point of what was going on. And the point is in verse 21. Notice what Peter says to conclude all this. He said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, the point of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is, is to convince others and to convict others that they need to come and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's a supernatural influence that draws people who wouldn't otherwise be drawn to God to lay down their sin and lay down their self-ideas and to give their lives to Christ. And only the Holy Spirit can do that in us. And the reason the Holy Spirit is given is to enable us to be the powerful witnesses of the resurrection and life of Jesus. Powerful. So here's some things to remember from Acts chapter two, three truths to remember. Hope you write them down. Number one, the Holy Spirit now empowers the church to carry out the mission. The Holy Spirit now empowers the church to carry out the mission. Do you know 
that we've been given a mission to reach the whole world for Jesus Christ, but there's no way we can do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. We'd be crazy to try. We couldn't organize well enough. We couldn't administrate well enough. We couldn't do enough things to be able to reach the world for Christ apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to remember that. We need to believe that. The promise of the Holy Spirit means that he empowers you specifically as an individual to be a powerful witness for him. You know what verse or two I love in the, in the New Testament so well? is Ephesians chapter three, verse 20. And Ephesians chapter three, verse 20 says, he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Don't you love that? That God can do so much more than what I even know about. In fact, if I had, if I had time to reflect on all that God's spirit could do in my life, I would step forth in faith a whole lot more. But I don't step forth in faith because I forget he's able to do above and beyond what I can think. When I, when I want to do something to, to serve the Lord, when I want to do something to witness for Christ, sometimes I take a step back and think, I can't do that. But the Bible says that I'm not supposed to do that in my own power. He never said I could, but he did say he would through me and in me through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are empowered. You're empowered to live the Christian life. You're empowered to be a witness for Christ. Let me just say this. I read this historical document this last week about the early church, and let me just read some things about this. It's, it's, it's wild. It said, on the surface, the early Christians appeared powerless and weak. They were an easy target for scorn and ridicule. They had no great financial resources. They had no buildings. They had no social status. They had no government approval. They had no respect from educators. And after they became separated from their first century association with the Jewish synagogues, they had no institutional backing and an ancient tradition to appeal to. But what finally mattered is what they did have. They had fellowship. They had a new way of life. They had a confidence that their Lord was alive in heaven and guiding their everyday lives. And those were important things. And above and beyond all that, they had the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And the New Testament church exploded in spite of not having anything going for them except the power of God. That's a powerful statement. Did you know today in China, over the last 40 years, the church under the communist regime in China has multiplied many times over despite official opposition and persecution. They have developed a rapidly spreading house, uh, house church network that is reminiscent of the early church. They are growing by leaps and bounds. Hundreds of thousands and millions of people are coming to faith in Christ in China in spite of not having anything except the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit still empowers the church. Aren't you glad? Number two, the gospel is for every person from every nation. Did you catch all the alls? I know I'm from Texas and I really sound like it when I talk about the word all. Did you catch all the alls, y'all? Did you catch that? People from all nations, people from all times, people from all languages, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and heard the word of God spoken in their own native tongue. That's amazing. And it says to us very clearly this, the gospel is not just for one group of people, but for all. First, the Jews received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, then the Samaritans, and then the Gentiles, and then the Greeks, and, and then from there it went to every person on the face of the earth. Jesus is not a white man, and the gospel is not for white people, it's for everybody on the face of the earth. So important for us to understand that. 
And then finally, and I love this one, I love this. God will do the extraordinary to bring people to salvation. If he will give every person in that upper room the ability to speak languages they've never heard before, never spoken before, and if he were to allow all those multitudes that are gathered to hear in their own native tongue the mighty deeds of God, what would God not do to bring others to faith in Christ? You know, there are times when I'm led to witness and I step back and I go, you know, I don't think they'll be open to that conversation. I forget about the power of the Holy Spirit. There are times when I want to communicate with somebody and I think, well, I won't be able to understand them and I forget about the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm more fearful of what I can't do than I am mindful of what he can do. But the Bible says that the Holy Spirit works inside of us so powerfully that if we'll just trust him, if we'll just step out, if we'll just be the witness he wants us to be, he'll bridge the gaps of communication and everything else. It may feel awkward to us. It may have felt awkward to them, but the end result was they were hearing about the mighty deeds of God and they came to faith. The Bible said that when Peter stood up to preach, 3,000 of them rushed to the stage and said, what must we do to be saved? Man, that's a great meeting right there whenever that happens, and it happened because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Not long after this, as you read in the book of Acts, you'll hear about a man named Philip, an everyday, ordinary guy. And Philip left what's otherwise considered a revival meeting and was led by the Spirit to go south to Gaza on a desert road. It's a great story. And so Philip under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, leaves that great revival meeting that everyone is experiencing revival and repentance and he walks south by himself on a desert road and he meets a man at a juncture in that road that we know as the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, Philip is only gone because he's been led. He doesn't really want to go there. I can't imagine anybody wanting to go south on a desert road away from a revival, but he goes because he's led by the Spirit of God and the Ethiopian eunuch is there reading from a scroll from the book of Isaiah. Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? The man said, how can I unless someone explain it to me? Well, that's an invite to a witness if I've ever heard one. He gets up and explains Jesus to him starting in the law and the prophets. And this man eventually puts his faith in Christ right there in that chariot and says, what prevents me from being baptized? And they find water on a desert road somewhere and they baptize this guy who's put his faith in Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing is when this witness encounter is over, the Bible says Philip is lifted up and removed and placed in a whole different place by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, I look at that story and I think, this is amazing to me. Here's a man that believes in the power of God's Spirit. He just obeys what the Spirit prompts him to do and the Spirit does all of the rest. Let me say to you today, we have all we need to be witnesses for Christ today. We have all we need. We just need to believe in the power of the Spirit of God. We need to believe that God will do whatever it takes and he will do the extraordinary just to bring people to faith in Jesus. And if we miss that point of Acts chapter two, we've missed the main point that Christ wants people to come to faith in him. Man, what a great story. I want to say this to you today. You're not here in this building by coincidence yourself. You may not be on a desert road somewhere reading a scroll, but you're in a place where the gospel, the good news of Jesus is being preached. And you're in a place 
where you can put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ right here, right now. You may have been even invited by somebody who was led by the Spirit to invite you to come today. Now, they didn't know what you would hear or what you would perceive, but they knew you needed to be here today. And it may be today that God's Spirit has positioned you just so that you can give your life to Christ, be forgiven of sin, and be given the gift of eternal life. That wouldn't be so unusual, would it? That God would do everything today just for you. I want you to bow your head for just a moment. And I'm gonna ask our counselors to come to the front. We have counselors that stand at the front at the end of every one of our services. And this is one of the opportunities that we would give someone like yourself. It may be today that you know that you need to have your sins forgiven. It may be today that you know you need to make a decision to come to Christ, to trust what he did on the cross, to pay for your sin. Maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've never realized that Jesus did everything he did on the cross to pay for your sins so that you could come and put your trust in him. He would forgive you and give you the gift of eternal life. It's as simple as that. And I know this, I know when I think about my life and I think about all the things I've done wrong, I am so glad God sent his son Jesus to die for my sins. And I'm so glad that I've received forgiveness because I put my faith and trust in him. Counselors, would you come on forward right now? Would you come on and stand at the front? We need a few more of you coming. In just a moment, I'm gonna ask that we stand as a congregation. And over these next couple of minutes, we're gonna sing some songs. And as we sing, I'll invite you to just take a short walk, to take the hand of one of these up front and to say, I wanna give my life to Christ today. It may be there's another decision you need to make, I don't know. But today, that is an important decision to make. I want to give my life to Christ. Father, thank you so much that today we can realize, remember the power of your Holy Spirit. Today, I pray that you would draw some people to you today, draw them to you so that they would make decisions to follow you, to let them, Father, today, give their lives to you. I pray for that today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.